everyone. Thank you for tuning into the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's April 2019, and you're listening to Episode 119 of Postmodern Realities, and it's Making a Case for the Historicity of Moses. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Mark D. Jansen. Mark has a Ph.D. in history with an emphasis in ancient Egypt from the University of Memphis. He is an assistant professor of history and archaeology at Scarborough College and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Mark has written a feature article in the Volume 42, Number 1, 2019 issue of the journal, and it's called Making a Case for the Historicity of Moses. Mark, it's good to have you on. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for this opportunity. Well, it seems like just because of the internet, I guess, there's just a lot of articles and different YouTube videos and different media resources now that are questioning the historicity of Moses, whether he existed, whether he had anything to do with authorship of the Bible. And so it's kind of out there now. And so a lot of people are questioning the historicity of Moses. So why do you think that there are scholars actually out there that are so skeptical about the historicity of Moses's existence. I think, um, well, it's it's an old idea, really, that's just now more popular or more accessible. Um, but I think it goes back to really two big issues that scholars have. One's a presupposition about the date that the Pentateuch was written. So most of them will say it's written very late, you know, 8th century uh, or even later during the exile, during the the uh, sixth century, or um, some even think it's like Hellenistic. So they think that it's so far removed from when the event would have allegedly happened that it must just be fiction. And then there's all the miracles and things like that. And so they think it's just an invention of basically priestly writers uh, compiling all these different documents. And the other reason I think is they're a bit um, misinformed about what archaeology can really do. So they'll say, well, there's no direct physical evidence of Moses in Egypt. And that is true, right? There's no Moses was here on a rock, but we have lots of circumstantial evidence. And archaeology is really good at broad patterns and at the big picture. And then occasionally there's a sensational find, but those are pretty rare. And I always wonder what, what kind of evidence would really constitute as proof to people. Even if we did have my little hypothetical, you know, Moses was here they would probably just say, oh, it's a different Moses. Oh, it's a common name, right? I mean, I think at some point we have unrealistic expectations. And even the scholars, I think, uh, often overstate what archaeology is really capable of on a topic this specific. And why do you think there's an interest right now, just in particular, regarding some of the, you know, trying to disprove whether or not historical people were actually part of the Bible? It seems like there's an increase in that, whether it's you know, various cable channels that run these series and things like that. There's just kind of an increase of interest in wondering if Moses or other figures in the Bible even existed. I've I've been wondering that a lot the last few years. I think it goes back about 10 years. You started to have more videos released, more popular sources, things that are accessible. So the average person is perhaps not that interested in subscribing to an academic journal to talk about these issues, but they might read a blog about it or they'll encounter videos like the patterns of evidence which is fairly popular and i think we've um just gotten better at sort of getting that information out and then that leads to questions and then you know the internet is is great but it's also dangerous because you could research things that um you don't always find 
real truthful answers. You got people with different agendas and axes to grind. But I, I think it is interesting how much it's picked up. And I'm not really sure other than that it's just more accessible, I think is probably the best answer. I think these days, and I've noticed this in even mainstream media sources like the New York Times, they're taking a lot of academics and making some of these arguments just um, more easily accessible to the layperson. So now, whether it's atheists or various different um, anti-Christian views out there on a, a wide variety of topics like philosophy that weren't usually talked about in a more popular cultural context, it seems like it's out there a lot. Well, there are some words that you use in your article that are newer to me, and I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing this right, so you can um, correct me, but um, I'd like you to explain to our listener, now how do I say this, memnohistory? Yeah, menohistory. Menohistory, and, and how does that apply to Moses? This is basically the idea that it's, it's a culture memory or memory history, sort of uh, the idea that he's a pious mythic figure who serves as a great inspiration, but there's probably not really any history to it. That's the view, uh, that it becomes something that they tell their children and their grandchildren, and then it gets more elaborate, and then eventually, finally, they write it down. And whatever vestiges of history or whatever bits of the historical Moses ever existed can't really be determined now because it's so sort of lumped in with all this culture and memory, and it becomes more important for the tale of redemption and how it inspires people more than anything that you could do historically. So how should Christians and the Christian apologists who believe in historical Moses that he existed, how should they address this memorial history view? It is a sneaky view because that last bit that I said, right, that he's inspiring, that the Exodus has this great tale of redemption and it reflects this sort of inner longing in, that we have as human beings to sort of be redeemed and liberated. There's a lot of truth to that, right? I don't disagree that it can be inspiring, but I do disagree that the that the traces of history are just long lost because I think there's plenty of information in the Pentateuch, in the accounts of Moses's life that reflect a much earlier time period than the idea that they wrote it much later does that are unique to Egypt, that they wouldn't know if they weren't in Egypt. So I think we just have to do our homework and try to set it in its proper context, recognizing that there is some truth to the view, but that it, I think, goes too far when it comes to the, the idea that Moses is just myth. You know, your article cites the need for external, like independent data from ancient sources. And you said there's nothing like a rock that says Moses was here kind of thing. But what are the sources out there for Moses Moses, and specifically the Exodus account? Okay, so um, for Moses, it's actually pretty difficult because it's he's such a specific topic, but there's actually some very good external data for the Exodus. Namely, the most important one is in Exodus 1.11, it mentions the Israelites building two store cities. Pithom, which in Egyptian is basically the house of the god Atum, Per Atum Pithom, and more importantly, the city Ramses. In Egyptian sources, it's called Pi Ramses, meaning the House of Ramses. This is a splendid capital city that Ramses II, a.k.a. Ramses the Great, built uh, in the delta, sort of the eastern part of the delta, to serve as his sort of regional capital there. It's just palaces. There's at least four temple complexes. There's a huge stable. There's granaries and so on. And it's been found archaeologically, but very, very thin remains because... The Egyptians reused the blocks elsewhere at a later capital called Tanis. The reason they did that is the branch of the Nile that Pi Ramses was built on dried up. 
and a splendid Egyptian capital not on a waterway is no splendid Egyptian capital at all. What this means for Christian and for apologists is that city only has a use of window for about 140 to 150 years. So the reference in Exodus is a very nice marker of authenticity. If they were making the whole story up much later, they would have just called it Tanis because Pi-Ramses is long gone. The only way they'd know of Pi-Ramses is if they were actually there in the environment, had something to do with its construction. That's a really nice marker of authenticity. Um, there's also lots of Egyptianisms, I tend to call them, in the Exodus accounts. So like in Moses' birth story, there are six e- words in the Hebrew that are clear Egyptian loan words that no one really even disputes this, like the word for rushes and the word for basket. Those are Egyptian words. And there's a few other places in the Pentateuch where we could talk about that too. But for the for the most part, what really matters here is that if they didn't ever live in Egypt, where do they get the knowledge of the Egyptian language and how do they have these loan words authentically sort of in the text? I mean, it's possible, but it's unlikely that they would just know this while they were living, say, in Babylon during the exile. We have little things like that. Um, another kind of fun one that's not in the article is, have you ever been reading the Exodus account and you're just sort of like, okay... Why can't you just tell us who Pharaoh is, right? He's always Pharaoh. But that is actually the way the Egyptians used the uh, terminology for their enemies during the New Kingdom when I believe the Exodus took place, because they will just call the enemy a generic name, like the great chieftain. And then later they give you an actual proper name, personal name. So the fact that the enemy of Yahweh is generic Pharaoh and not Pharaoh X actually fits with the time period for the setting of the Exodus as well. So we have these sort of little clues that really require you to sort of have a knowledge of some of the Egyptian practices, but I do think they demonstrate an overall, I guess, plausibility, even though they don't constitute like direct proof. You know, you talk about in the article that people, they misunderstand, you know, the capabilities of archaeology. So what do you mean by that exactly? Um, When it comes to the Exodus, there's this idea that there's been all this work done in Egypt and we haven't found anything that really references the Israelites. But, or, or when it comes to the, you know, wanderings in Sinai, there's been all this excavation, but they haven't found any evidence. But those things just aren't true. There really haven't been major excavations in Sinai. There's been surface surveys, which don't really have the kind of depth to cover anything with um, the kind of certainty that the argument is based on. So there's really not any truth to that when it comes to Sinai. When it comes to Egypt, and especially the Delta, where it's still very densely populated and there is more moisture, we probably have ever excavated like 1% of all that ever was there. Even the most thoroughly excavated site, if you talk to like Manfred Betok, who digs at Avaris, he thinks he's maybe excavated 3% of what was there. And that's been going on for 40 years, those excavations. So so much material either awaits discovery or is just forever lost that those kind of claims that just based on the absence of evidence, I think we have to call an argument of silence. One way that I always try to put it that I think um, resonates with people is that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It just means it's long lost or we haven't discovered it yet. And so archaeology is limited in that sense, and it's also limited in, in some of the stuff we talked a little bit about before, in that it, it does pretty good with big patterns, but it doesn't do as well with specific details. And um, as far as like the Egyptians go, you know, we have all these monuments, we have 
thousands of texts and so on, but they don't memorialize defeats. So, oh, the Egyptians don't mention the Exodus. Well, yeah, they they take stalemates like the Battle of Kadesh, where Ramses really loses or is a stalemate at best, and he still celebrates it like a win. They're not going to decorate temple walls with the escape of however many slaves. They're not. They're just going to pretend that whole thing didn't happen, as far as the propaganda goes. And so that's archaeological in the sense that it's all stuff we discover, but we have to ask archaeology the right questions, right? Like, what are the bigger patterns? Can we show Semites living in Egypt? And we absolutely can. But what would an Israelite at that time look like versus a Canaanite in the material culture? There would be nothing distinct about their pottery. They're not even allowed to make graven images of their deities, right? So like, we know there's lots of Semites, people from you know the far west of Asia, living in Egypt in that time period. But there's nothing ethnically in the archaeological record that would serve as a distinct thing that you could say, ah, that, that is definitely Israelite. So, oh, there's no traces of Israelites in the archaeological record. Yeah, but what would you expect that to be anyway? And so scholars don't agree on this, but then they make these grand sweeping statements that sound definitive, but they're actually really kind of just based on nothing. You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Jansen, who has written a feature article for our Volume 42, Number 1, 2019 issue of the journal, and his article is called Making a Case for the Historicity of Moses. To read Mark's article, please subscribe to our journal. A subscription is $33.50, and you can subscribe at our website online at equip.org. We were just talking about the limits of archaeology, which I find fascinating. Just, you know, as a layperson, we've seen all the various different well-known, you know, Egyptian exhibits and so forth. So, you know, we seem to think, well, we've discovered everything there's to discover. I want to go back a little bit earlier in the podcast, you were talking about accounts of Moses's birth. So what should we make of comparisons between accounts of Moses's birth and something called the Legend of Sargon. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the Legend of Sargon is a a text written about a king of Mesopotamia who ruled in the 2300s BC, who is placed in a basket by his mother, like a waterproof basket, shortly after birth, set in a river, and then miraculously saved. So there's obvious sort of comparisons people will make just topically, right, to Moses, put in a basket, put in a river, and so on. Um, And both accounts are usually dismissed by scholars as legendary, with the implication for Moses being that he must therefore be fictitious. But this need not be the case, right? Because Sargon was a real king. Whether his birth story is a legend or not, it does not follow that he did not exist. Right, just because there's a legend about the birth doesn't automatically make someone a, a sort of legendary or mythical uh, figure. And then there's also the um, the loan words we mentioned. So if Moses was just a simple, if the birth story of Moses was just a simple cut and paste, if you will, from the Sargon legend, then why does um, it again contain six Egyptian loan words and not Mesopotamian words? for things like the reed rushes and the basket and so on. So I think that what it really shows is not that the authors or Moses or whoever's writing the Pentateuch uh, or editing the final version and whatnot stole the ideas from Mesopotamia. It's instead that famous ancient rulers often 
have this sort of story attached to them. It's part of the, the ancient mindset, sort of the exposed child motif. And Moses doesn't suffer, the historicity of Moses doesn't suffer just because of his remarkable birth and his survival. That's actually something the ancients like to write about. And those characters are still considered historical, like Sargon. In your article, you discuss parallels to certain ancient literary sources. So how did these particular sources help us better understand, you know, the accounts of Moses's life in the Pentateuch? Yeah, so most of what I'm trying to do for, I guess, the last like half of the article is just sort of put Moses in his ancient context. So the idea that he's a fugitive on the run and then he comes back under a new ruler, that is actually something that the Egyptians have a story about called the Tale of Sinuhe. He actually heads off to Syria, Palestine. He comes back. He's uh, given a you know, sort of celebration when he returns. So there's, of course, plenty of differences, but both counts are, are really the sort of uh, the idea of politics and reconciliation that the ancients have, where someone can leave but come back. Um, so Moses being on the run and coming back is actually not that unbelievable either. Um, or you could talk about um, other examples that are both archaeological and literary, like the names of some of the viziers in Egypt in this time, especially one named Abdiel, is actually a Semitic name. And they just recently have published his tomb, and he calls himself a vizier, which is our translation of the Egyptian term chati, which basically means second in command to Pharaoh. And so this idea that, that a Semite could be powerful is still true, too. And, and his tomb is an autobiography describing all this. What this shows is that Moses' upbringing is not far-fetched. There's lots of foreigners in the Egyptian court that are brought up after Th- Moses III's time in Egyptian sort of practices and policies, language, and then sent back, they're like princes, princelings, and then sent back to rule as vassals. So that's like they have a local ruling to keep the peace, but he's been fully Egyptianized. Something like that could also have happened with Moses. And the literary aspect of this is their their names, there's so many of the names that are actually Semites. So there's there's those comparisons. Um, there's comparisons also to like the covenant and Hittite law. So like if you look at the civil law in the Pentateuch, there's about 150 of them. The law code of Hammurabi has 282. Hittite legal codes have over 200. Now the the Talmud cites 613 laws in the Torah, but that also includes things like the cultic laws, the priestly regulations, even commands in Genesis like be fruitful and multiply, which is not the kind of law I'm talking about, just civil law. So in those legal documents, those literary sources or written sources show um, a complexity that that makes the amount of laws on civil matters in the Pentateuch uh, very believable. Regarding Moses' leadership, there are those who would say he has all these different roles that the Bible talks about, so it's too good to be true. You know, he's a military leader. He was, you just mentioned he was in Pharaoh's court, and you just talked about the laws being a lawgiver and so forth, but you don't think that all of his roles are you know, too good to be true. And why is that? Again, it's it's because of the way the ancients um, look at the world and the way that, that leadership tended to work there. Moses belongs to a world of powerful warriors who also are the divine sources of justice. Like Hammurabi thinks he's getting his law from the gods. He's also a conquering king. Pharaoh is a god king for that matter. It's even more emphatic. These are sort of superpowered people in a sense. Uh, and so it, it, when we take it and we put it into their world and not just our world, 
he's very much a part of their world and it's it's very believable from their perspective and then for that matter this is a little bit more philosophical but um i don't understand why uh, a a powerful person or a great man or even woman of course uh, but in the ancient times usually a man doing great things should be considered to be too far-fetched i mean we could go through a laundry list of you know great historical figures who accomplished great things against overwhelming odds whether they're political leaders or you know someone like Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King and what they're achieving is more about civil rights and liberties or whether we're talking about someone like Alexander the Great conquering a large chunk of the world you know in his early 30s that's not there's nothing that makes those things fictitious just because they're great deeds that are not something that happens every day doesn't make them strictly fiction so there's that as well um so i think you know, too good to be true. And, and, and that's kind of coming out of the Nova article interview that um, Carol Myers did. And she's a good scholar. She's done a number of wonderful treatments of gender in the ancient world and women's rights and sort of like property rights and divorce rights. And so that makes it even more sort of curious to me when she when it comes to this sort of popular interview about Moses, she just sort of generalizes. And I'm thinking, well, but, but specifically, why is he too good to be true? Because these are all things that ancient rulers are expected to do and leaders. And at the very least, he's an ancient leader. So the idea that he has these different roles is is not far-fetched. And then additionally, he has help. Right? The Pentateuch makes it very clear that Yahweh provides for him help. He's got counsel. He's got Jethro. Most obviously, he has Aaron. So, I mean, I, I think those kind of comments are just very misleading, and they make it seem again, like this overly romantic cultural memory that's too good to be true. And I'm thinking, well, there's plenty of reason to dismiss that idea if we actually put it in context and are sort of just willing to do the homework there. So when we think about um, reading about Moses, particularly in the Bible, God gives him some very large tasks, you know, whether it's going to confront Pharaoh, whether it's leading the people out, it's just this big task that he's given. Why do you think he in particular, we're just talking about his leadership qualities. Why was he uniquely suited to this task? Okay, so there's a, there's sort of two ways I want to answer this. One with what we have within scripture about like sort of Moses's character. And then the second one would be his upbringing. So within scripture, his character, he's very reluctant. I mean, the burning bush story, this is a man who doesn't want to go do it, right? He needs reassured constantly. He's got this sort of speech issue or whatever that's about. He's a fugitive on the run for committing murder. This is not an ideal leader on paper within the Pentateuch, which I do think just as a quick side note also helps our case against the cultural memory. Like who writes a hero with these kind of flaws if they're trying to celebrate this like amazing inspirational figure for their children and grandchildren. Moses actually has a, makes a lot of mistakes and some pretty huge ones, not unlike David who makes also really large mistakes. So I think we have this reluctance within within the Pentateuch about Moses, the leader, initially. And I think that kind of humility is required for the real hero of the story, Yahweh, to receive the full sort of glory and attention. Within the Egyptian side of things, Moses being raised in Egyptian court as a foreigner, which I mentioned, is very much plausible. That's a standard practice during this time period. But it also meant he would be taught the kind of things that he would need to know to start a covenant, to make a fully legally binding document, to lead the people, to have the sort of linguistic skills necessary for the treaty. And so he's actually ideally suited to the role that God has for him, even if Moses himself in the Pentateuch 
doesn't seem to think so or is very reluctant. I think it's really interesting how he's almost been prepared for this all along. And then God, again, provides help where he needs it. Um, a few minutes ago, I want to go back to laws because you were talking about laws in various different law codes. But how did the civil laws specifically contained in the Pentateuch compare to other ancient civil law codes? Uh, they look very familiar. So um, the kind of treaty that it's based on is the suzerain vassal treaty. So like Yahweh is the the king in this case, and then the Israelites are the vassals. And we see the Hittite kings doing treaties like this with their vassals. And it's like, if you do this, then I will do this. If you do that, then there will be punishment. So the structure is very similar in terms of the details of the codes. It's fairly well um, established that the they, just like the Code of Hammurabi, you have the, the Lex Talionis or the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth idea. But I do think there are some differences, too, that we should be cognizant of that we don't just want to dismiss. Um, you know, this whole idea that there's the mean, angry, vengeful God of the Old Testament, um, I don't think really works when you look at all the, the grace inherent in some of the laws, too. Like, yes, he will punish if, he's, if he needs to, but only after a long time has passed where he's given chance after chance to repent, even like the iniquity of the Canaanites taking 400 years and things like that. There's a certain sense that's unique in the Pentateuch where God's hesed in the Hebrew, his covenant loyalty, his covenant faithfulness and love is really stressed as well. And so I think that's something that probably we need to do in a lot of ways some more work on in comparing these things. But structure is very similar in a lot of the civil codes like divorce law or property rights, and um, some of the punishments, especially the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, are very similar. I'd like to ask you, like, uh, first of all, I want everyone to subscribe to this journal so that they can read your article. But for those who read the article, what's the biggest takeaway that you hope that readers will get gleaned from it? You know, I, I sometimes talk to people, to believers, to Christians, and they they feel sort of almost this like nagging. I don't know, like they're, they're simple or they're too naive if they think these things are true and historically true. And so I hope, I think the main thing I want them to take away is that they, they come away realizing, hey, my faith is actually very reasonable. And that includes a historical Moses. There are good reasons to hold to this view. I can't 100% prove it, but it is not naive to think that Moses did exist and did lead the children of Israel out of Egypt and did initiate a covenant with Yahweh in the mountains of Sinai. Um, so I hope they just take away from it some encouragement about the general plausibility of it. And then secondly, I hope they take away, away from it sort of an awareness of some of the stuff we've been talking about, like the limits of archaeology, the importance of the setting in the Egyptian context, and recognize at least a little bit of that and you can reach out to me or um, other Egyptologists to try to understand those things better so that they're a little less susceptible to the claims that they might see online, whether it's overstating the case or whether it's saying, you know, it's all purely fiction. I hope they're at least a little bit more equipped to deal with those kinds of questions because I think it's going to continue with the videos and the blogs. It's, um, it's going to still be a very prominent topic. I think that's important, especially if there are some parents with students, too, because a lot of times when people are doing research, then they, for a school paper, they stumble across this. And then so some Christian students might be questioning their faith. Is this even true? Did this guy even exist? So I appreciate you equipping our listeners. So finally, I want to end with some fun rapid fire questions for Mark. Mark, you live in Texas, Tex-Mex or Texas barbecue? Um, boy, you know, I got, a, I got a friend who makes the best brisket you've ever had. If he's making the brisket, I'd take that. Otherwise, I would take uh, Tex-Mex. Are you an early bird or a night owl? 
Uh, by, by the fact that I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old, I've been forced to become an early bird in the recent years, but now I actually really enjoy it. I get most of my writing done in the morning, so I've, I've flipped in the last few years, but early bird now. And it's April, so do you do your own taxes? Would you prefer to do that, or would you rather have jury duty? For now, uh, I would still rather do my own taxes because I can at least set that schedule-wise. Like I can do that on my own time. Jury duty sort of, my impression of it is, haven't ever had it, is it just disrupts like a whole week, potentially. So I'd definitely rather do my own taxes, even though that's not really any fun either. And, well, it's impressive that you do your own taxes. Uh, are you an introvert or extrovert? My wife likes to joke, I'm, a, I'm an extrovert until I've had my fill, and then there's a switch, and I'm an immediately an introvert for a couple days. And I think she's probably right. So I'm some sort of strange mix. And what's some of the biggest blessings, or at least one biggest blessing, about being a seminary college professor? Um, well, I love working with the students. I know that sounds sort of cliche and trite, but I really enjoy that. Um, you kind of referenced it earlier with your, when you, uh, just a few minutes ago, when you're talking about like equipping parents and Christian students, because one of the things I think is really important is we help students be ready to combat arguments they're going to hear in college, right? They raise in the church and they believe everything. And then they have this sort of crisis that first year or two of college. And so I love being here, being able to help equip them and equipping future, in many cases, youth pastors who are going to hopefully take these lessons to their youth groups too. Um, And being able to have sort of a flexible schedule is pretty pretty hard perked at top as well. So I think those two things really stand out. And then lastly, I would say, having come from uh, a secular institution and now being in a seminary, it's great to be around an atmosphere with so many other Christians who are also intellectuals. Sometimes you feel like an island at the mainline universities. And so just the, the friendships and being able to, to dialogue about these things in an intelligent manner with fellow believers is really, really a blessing. And I think that's important. I was listening to a secular podcast, not even on religion, on something else. And the host was saying, why is it that so many religious people are anti-intellectual? So it's great to know that there, I feel like tweeting him saying, that's not true. There are a lot of intellectuals that are Christians. Well, thanks, Mark, for being a guest on the Postmodern Realities podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a great time. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Jansen, and he's written a feature article for our Volume 42 number one issue of our journal, and it's called Making a Case for the Historicity of Moses. To read Mark's article, please subscribe to the journal. A subscription is $33.50, and to subscribe, go to our website, equip.org. We'd like to hear from you, so connect with us on social media. Like the Bible Answer Man Facebook page and follow CRI Christian Research Journal Hank Hanegraaff, and The Bible Answer Man on Twitter. And please subscribe to The Bible Answer Man channel on YouTube. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Postmodern Realities podcast on iTunes, and please rate and review our podcast. When you rate and review our podcast, it helps others see our content. And please share this episode on your social media accounts. Be sure you tune in daily to the Bible Answer Man broadcast hosted by CRI President Hank Hanegraaff, who answers your questions live on air. To ask Hank a question, call 888-ASK-HANK, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. In addition, head to iTunes and subscribe to Hank Unplugged, Hank's audio podcast. Follow Hank off the grid, where he has in-depth conversations with some of the brightest minds discussing topics you care about. So until our next Christian Research Journal author conversation, thanks for listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast.